You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Driving Law with Kyla Lee. This week, we have a really interesting episode in store for you because we get to talk about where driving law intersects with airplanes. And you might think, airplanes don't use the road. How do airplanes have anything to do with driving law? But we're going to be talking to Scott Wonder, a lawyer in Seattle uh, who specializes in cases dealing with um, airplanes and um, specifically pilots and how impaired driving charges and any type of driving-related prohibition can impact their ability to fly planes internationally. So it's going to be a very, very interesting discussion with Scott, um, and I hope you all enjoy. So I'm here with Scott Wonder, who, if you don't know, is the best uh, driving lawyer that I know in all of Washington State and that I know of in all of the Western United States. So hi, Scott. Thanks for joining me. Good morning, Carla. Thank you. Thank you for having me and thank you for your kind statements. I think you (laughs) flatter me too much. No. Um, You are an expert in something that I don't think a lot of people think relates to driving law, and that is FAA or or Federal Aviation Authority. The Federal Aviation Administration, actually, it's interesting. It doesn't just govern pilots with U.S. licenses, but just about anybody who flies into or out of the United States has to have some FAA authority, even if they are on international licenses. I found this out with a client who was Belgian and another client who predominantly flew in Africa that were referred to me by people in this area. And what has happened is 25 years ago, because we all like to fly to destinations in airplanes (laughs) but want our pilots to be sober, Uh, Congress passed a measure and the Federal Aviation Administration, the FAA, implemented it that made it so that pilots had a couple of things they had to do. If they got convicted of a DUI, they had to report it to the FAA. If they were administratively sanctioned, what in Canada you might call a roadside prohibition, and in the United States we call it an administrative license suspension or an administrative license revocation, they have to report it to the FAA. And convictions and administrative actions have short timelines. And if you don't report, it's worse. even if, <laughs> even if it's an innocent error, Uh, you lose your flying license for 30 to 60 to 90 days in most cases. And if you're a commercial airline pilot, not being able to fly for 30, 60, 90 days, you may keep your job, but that's a pretty significant loss of income, and not a lot of attorneys are aware of that. The third area that has been even more affected is the area of airman's medical exam. And we say airman's medical exam not because we don't acknowledge that there are female (laughs) pilots, 
but because that's what the statutory phrase right. is and yeah. because it was the statute was enacted in perhaps a less enlightened time in Canadian constitutional law, we have a case that says that any time a statute refers to a man, it also refers to a woman. So That's, and and we, have, we have that. But uh, these exams, uh, we'll call them AME, Airman Medical Exams, have a number of questions that a pilot fills out prior to going in to see the doctor. And you, pilots have to see doctors, depending on their rating, every six months at least, every year at least, every two years at least, and in a few cases every three years. Okay. Three years would be the lowest level of recreational type of pilot. Every six months is an airline transport pilot who's flying you know, a big plane, a 747 or a Dreamliner or a big Airbus. Okay, so not those like harbor air flights or anything like that? Actually, a harbor air flight probably has an ATP rating as well. Wow. And Harbor Air now flies to Seattle from downtown really? Vancouver. Yeah. Oh, how convenient. So I imagine there's probably FAA licenses required for those pilots. That's, I, I, I'm certain that's true. And, and even if they have a Canadian flight license, they the FAA is regulating people in the U.S. airspace. Perhaps not in an overflight if you were flying from, say, Bermuda to Japan and not landing, but right. uh, they, if you land, they take an unnatural interest in your license. <laughs> now, where people get... I want to go back to the two conviction and administrative suspension things before I talk about AME exams, just because the important thing is once a suspension or conviction has occurred, you have a very short period of time to notify the FAA. And you have to notify the FAA for every event. If you get a conviction and then you're administratively suspended later, you have to notify them for both of those. Oh, wow. Uh, typically, the timeline is 60 days from the date of the conviction. I tell people, better do it within 30. There's a specific place it has to go to. There's specific information it has to contain. And that's... That's the first part of the puzzle. So in British Columbia, people, if you're getting a criminal charge for impaired driving, you get first a 24-hour license suspension. You have to notify for that. Then you get a 90-day that starts 21 days later. You'd have to notify for that. And then if you're convicted, you'd also have to notify for that? That's correct. Wow. Now, it, it can be, you can reference that it's all related to one event. Yeah. But each we'll call them triggering action, requires a separate notification. And that's going to create a problem that we'll touch on in a minute after we talk about these medical exams. The medical exam has a questionnaire, and it used to be it would ask, have you been convicted of DUI or have you had an administrative license suspension because of a DUI? Right. About three and a half, four years ago, they changed that question to say, have you ever been arrested? Which, <laughs> let's say you are stopped in outside Vancouver. You're very smart. You hire Kyla Lee. You hire Paul Doroshenko's law firm. You overturn the roadside suspension. You win the criminal case. You think that 
the justice system has worked perfectly. Even though you're innocent, even though you don't have a prohibition on the airman's exam, you have to write, yes, I've been arrested. Right. Or if you've been arrested and they take you back to the police station and you blow and you blow zero and it was all a big mistake, you still you've have to been write arrested. yes. Now, wow. where it, there are, there are a couple of other gotchas. Let's say you're not arrested for DUI, but as part of a resolution of a case, your attorney, Kyla, gets talks to the prosecutor, and part of the deal is you have to have an evaluation for alcohol or substance abuse. Or let's say that the judge says, I just want you to go to a victim's panel class, or I want you to go to an eight-hour Saturday class that is educational in nature. Those things also have to be reported on this oh my God. medical exam. So... So we have mandatory in BC, if you get a 90-day roadside prohibition, you're not arrested for DUI, but you get automatically referred to an education class, so you'd have to report that. Yes. Oh my God. That's horrible. It's It's it's, very oppressive. Well, it's very oppressive, and it requires an attorney has to work very closely with the client because, I mean, I, I do these not necessarily for people who start out as my clients because sometimes they're in California and sometimes they're overseas and sometimes they're in Canada and a friend of mine from Texas says the surest way to commit malpractice as an attorney is help somebody out in an area that's very close to what you do and are well qualified to do but about which you don't have a lot of knowledge and and a lot of DUI defense attorneys recognize that this FAA stuff first To get the knowledge, you would have to have a big pot of coffee and spend a Saturday morning in a quiet room reading through these statutes (laughs) and regulations in fine print. So uh, getting, getting back to where we were, you have to follow these, their case closely, work with their attorney and work with them and say, okay, you've got a roadside prohibition, we've got to report this. You've got the 90-day suspension, we have to report this. You've got the conviction, we've got to report this. And then when it's time for you to do your medical exam, we're going to have to fill out and make certain we check the right boxes, and we have to have an explanation for that. And then just when you thought we were finished comes the third gotcha. What has happened in the last year or year and a half is that when the FAA gets one of these reports, I got a roadside, I got a conviction, or when they get a medical exam, they look to the facts and they typically delay the processing of the application unless it was a pretty straightforward case you mentioned where you get arrested, you go to the, you go to the, uh, station and you test and it's zero zeros and maybe they draw blood and it's still zero zeros <laughs> or like one of my cases yeah, obvious. you have caffeine and nicotine in your system which would be coffee and cigarettes which they haven't made illegal yet uh, what happens is if you have any sort of positive result certainly over a 0.08 they are going to want 
a substance professional, typically a DOT, Department of Transportation professional, to do an evaluation. And these are people wow. who, in the past, uh, truck drivers or mm -hmm. people who have merchant marine licenses, they're branching out. Where it becomes really problematic is if you, even if they got a search warrant and you had a zero, zero result, if you refused a roadside test, which in the states, many many states, you have the the right to the right to refuse, yeah. and it's not a criminal offense. Or if you test above a point one five, it used to be point two zero. They make you do a specialized substance abuse assessment with a specialized human intervention motivation specialist psychiatrist, of which there are only about a hundred in the United States, two in Washington. Okay. Those are hard to schedule. They take a substantial amount of time. They involve a great deal of prying. The psychiatrist is directed to not only get the police reports and your side of the story, and, but they are also directed to go to collateral sources. So they're allowed to, to your, use the police report against you, even though it's an untested allegation, and even though this whole process of doing these psychiatric interviews, use of the police report might compromise some issues for your defense when it comes to trial. That's correct. Wow. <laughs> That's correct. So, and it, and I have yet to see one of these processes complete in 30 days. Yeah. So, here is where it's really important to be proactive and on top of things. When I, when I hear of a pilot who's likely to have anything like this going on, I like to refer them to the psychiatrist that I know they're going to get told to go visit well in advance. I mean, ideally we want to have catch them if they've got a six month cycle, we want to be at least two months and probably three months before so that when they go in for their medical exam, they can say, and I know I'm going to get this letter from the FAA, so here are the seven things the Federal Aviation Administration is going to ask for, including item seven, which is my HIMS psychiatric exam, the results, here's the doctor, here's a medical release, you can pass it on, here's my statement, here's the copies of the police report, and typically it involves sending, a, we'll do it in metric for our Canadian friends, a five centimeter stack of papers oh my God. Uh, to so the you, FAA. So as a lawyer then, you have to be incredibly organized to get your clients through this successfully. It It is, and it's it's... They, you know, they say the devil is in the details, and this is one of those cases where you do have a great deal of detail. And I, I, I wish I could say I've automated the process. It doesn't lend <laughs> itself particularly to automation because there are all of these little things you've got to check on. But there, there are generally seven categories of information that you're going to have to provide, and so. The minute I know this is going on, uh, a pilot has to get their driving records from all jurisdictions they've had a driver's license in the last 10 years. And for pilots, you could be moving around a lot pilots and have licenses. Pilots around a lot. And for example, in Washington, our, our driving records really don't go back more than five years statutorily unless you have an alcohol-related offense that's on your record. And 
hopefully these pilots don't. <laughs> um, there's you have to have a personal statement regarding your use of alcohol and what led up to the incident in question, or okay. or heaven forbid, if it were uh, illegal drugs. I mean, it, in British Columbia and Canada, soon marijuana will be legalized. In Washington, Oregon, California, uh, there are personal use legalizations and. How is That's the a, how is the FAA dealing with that and with THC concentrations in the blood? Because some states have per se limits, some don't, and then there's all of the as we just heard here, um, the THC impairment studies that well, don't find a correlation. It's it's pretty easy to answer that one because they don't care about state laws right. under federal law. THC is illegal. Hemp of any any type has no legitimate industrial or recreational use and so there is absolutely no reason for anyone to have any in their system and uh, just to go a little bit afield one of the biggest problems uh, someone's found to be using marijuana uh, all sorts of federal things start to happen uh, the right to possess a firearm is taken away and they get notices from the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms because they're a user of a dangerous narcotic under right. that statute, yeah. marijuana. Um, they Meanwhile, people who are uh, high on cannabis might have difficulty finding, <laughs> finding now, their gun. Now, in fairness, most pilots are not going to be doing cannabis or other illegal drugs because right. most pilots are subject to random testing. Uh, as you know, transportation workers in general, uh, whether they're truck drivers, merchant mariners, pilots, flight attendants, uh, pursers, they all have to uh, go through regular random urinalyses as part of their conditions for job. Are there exceptions to that for medical cannabis? There are no exceptions. None. Wow. None whatsoever. The FAA is harsh. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's just a matter of federal law. And right. It's, it's not... It's it, it goes higher than the FAA. It goes, you know, maybe not all the way up to the top because depending on what uh, the president has had to say, he <laughs> vacillates on on that subject. But the attorney general, who's charged with enforcing the laws of the United States, has taken a completely different position than uh, the attorney general under, under Obama, and that is that uh, marijuana is the devil's drug. <laughs> Never mind uh, what research and other people have to say about it. Yeah. So. Okay. So there's there's uh, it, it's complicated and and one of the things I do is I I like to work with uh, these professionals whether they are in, in on boats on airplanes driving trucks they they present an extra set of is issues that. Are somewhat complicated but uh, it's important to keep people like that working it's important that uh, regardless of whether they're over the limit with alcohol or not the, the mere fact of the arrest mm -hmm. uh, it, it, it offends me that a person can be arrested and perhaps be completely innocent of all charges and still have to report this and go through this additional burden yeah. Because of a misguided police officer that doesn't know better. And they, you know, should obviously have 
competent and qualified representation when dealing with that. Yeah. Would you advise people to go it alone? I No, well, I wouldn't because I think there is a tendency, uh, I'll use a different example, when it comes to paying our, our taxes in the States, uh, you can use a program, uh, TurboTax, for example, to pay your income taxes, and lots of people do. I do myself because I, I have a little bit of complication, but... Uh, many people don't start doing their taxes until the week before right. the taxes are due. Um, starting a month before, I've discovered, is a whole lot better way to do it. And actually, if, <laughs> I, start, <laughs> if I start two months before, I find that getting them filed on time without an extension is really pretty easy. The problem with going it alone is you're typically not going to know what you need to get together and have ready to supply to your doctor, flight physician, and to the FAA until you get the letter from the FAA. Whereas if you meet with competent counsel in advance, they're going to say, you've been arrested. Okay. You're going to need a personal statement. You are going to need your driver's records. You are going to need to make an appointment with this person you may not be able to get to see for three weeks and you're going to need to do an evaluation with him or her and start that process well in advance. So when it comes time to go see your physician and when it comes time to respond to the FAA, you have everything there right. and ready. So if somebody listening to this either represents a pilot or is a pilot who's facing this, how can they get in touch with you? Best way to get in touch with me is to call my office. I'm in Bellevue. Uh, office phones, if we're not there, we certainly have voicemail. That's 425-453-9200. Or you can send me an email. Email is my first name, Scott, S-C-O-T-T. My last name, Wonder, W-O-N-D-E-R, at gwwp.com that's g is in golf w as in whiskey w as in whiskey and p is in paul.com or you can call me on my cell phone which is on 24 7 unless i have the pleasure of being in an airplane where they aren't very happy if your phone rings and no. that's 425-985-1500 425-985-1500 and of course if you contact my friend Kyla Lee, she can put you in touch with me as well. I can, and I'm always happy to refer people to you. Thank you so much, Scott. Oh, you're more than welcome. So, Paul, you again missed a very interesting discussion with uh, one of our guests. I know, with one of our favorite people, um, Scott Wonder, lovely guy. I know, he is actually one of my favorite people. Like, if you asked me to list favorite people, he would be in my top 10. No, oh, I know. He's just a very nice guy. He's uh, extremely intelligent. He's sophisticated and neat. And you, uh, he talks to, he talks to the waiter the same way he talks to, um, the same way he talks to the judge, the same way he talks to me, the same way he's just like one of those genuine people who's, who's, um, who is who he is and, uh, and everything about him is, uh, quite, um, compelling. Yeah, after I interviewed him, we went out to go slurp some oysters in Philadelphia and um, we're sitting at the oyster bar and all of a sudden he's like become best friends with the guy on the bar stool next to him who also turns out to be a really important person in the wine world. 
Yeah. Well, just, that, that doesn't surprise me with Scott. Right? <laughs> he does, just attracts does, all these cool people. Doesn't surprise me. Yeah, yeah anyway. he's a neat guy. I'm anyway. a huge fan of him. Um, so you missed out on that. But what you didn't miss out I'll on... I'll listen to the podcast, though. I always listen to the podcast. I know. So... You're, yeah. you're maybe our only listener. Like no, when I, I look, I'm so. like, oh, someone listened. It's just you. <laughs> does it, does it, can you tell? Can you tell well, who listened? You can tell the number of listens on SoundCloud. Um, but of course, we have the podcast on multiple listening places. We have it on iTunes. We have it on Player FM. Um, you can tune in on all these different sources. And so we don't know the total number of listens. I, I uh, get it on iTunes. It just automatically downloads into my phone. Oh, yeah. So see. I don't listen to it on SoundCloud. Okay. So. Well, then you, then we at least have another listener. <laughs> we have more than that. Um, for all of you out there who are listening, apparently a, a good contingent of students at UBC. Oh, well, they should be listening to it. It's not, a, you know, we cover things. We cover it correctly. We discuss it in a, you know, the way we discuss things sort of in, in the office. So why not? Yeah. Um, anyway, the thing I wanted to talk to you about that you got a good amount of, of discussion about already this week was all the police forces, the municipal police forces across the country rallying against the Drager drug test 5000. Well, and, and really, actually, if you listen to um, the chief of police for Vancouver, that was on Linda Steele's show where, where um, he made the announcement public, he railed on it a little bit. And there's been a little bit of backtracking since then because they, uh, the, the articles that I've seen in the last two days, you were in a Canadian press one, I was in one with Castanet and another one. Um, and the... The interviews that have been given since have been, well, we're not going to rush into anything. Mm-hmm. We're going to buy one of them, maybe, if we can afford it. We're going to test it. We are concerned about the things that have been brought up in the media. Well, yeah. Well, so yeah. they should be. Yeah. And the RCMP is apparently buying 20 just right off the top. Well, yeah, but 20 is not enough for the entire country. No, we 20, 20 is not enough for BC, BC. or the yeah, lower or, mainland. Yeah, exactly, for the RCMP. But, um, you know, I think they want to get it and experiment with it. The the temperature issues, even Vancouver is concerned about that, despite the fact that, you know, our range of temperature <laughs> is basically like uh, eight degrees at the so, coldest or, so you know, really, sometimes to zero. But we're, we're really concerned about the cold temperatures. <clears throat> and you're like, it's it's almost October. And today was a lovely, beautiful, sunny, warm 21 day. degrees or yeah. something. <laughs> the, but and the thing with Vancouver, it's like the one place in Canada where you can actually say, this isn't a problem. The temperature is not an issue. <laughs> there is a concern about humidity um, in when you read the material about oh, it getting I never too saw humid. That. Yeah, you know, I look for that every time when that would be a Vancouver concern. Whenever we get a um, uh, manual for something, um, you know, we get a manual for a laser gun, for example, a laser device. Um, I always look through it to look for the things that are concerns. And one of the things that's in every one of them is humidity is a concern. And I'm always thinking, this is Vancouver, you know, there's no matter what, uh, you, you can have a humidity, uh, electronic problem or with a laser gun, um, some sort of fog inside on the, uh, on the laser itself. And, uh, I'm, I've never had to go that route in the questioning when I've got a police officer, but I'm always yeah. looking at did it you, and thinking. Did you ask the officer the Humidex, Paul? Yeah. <laughs> did you have some silica gel in pack in with the, uh, in the case with that, uh, ProLaser 3? If any police officers are listening now, they're going to be like, oh shit. Yeah. I better be prepared <laughs> for that. Yeah. The, uh, I, I, it's I, probably not. Uh, that one's not coming and we have better things and we're not telling you what they are on the podcast. Yeah. Oh. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, I think the, 
the decision to wait and and see and to do their own experimentation is smart. I anticipate that the forensic lab in Vancouver here is going to get one of the 20 that have been ordered and they'll probably do their own testing. Oh, I think the RCMP forensic lab here probably has one. The no, forensic lab? No, because the president of Dragger earlier this week in an interview said, there's no way that you or I could have a drug test 5000 with the Canadian programming because only three of them had been produced. Yeah, and they may have one of the three. Maybe, but I don't... Uh, already? I don't I know. Anyway, one's gone to the forensic, like the Canadian Society of Forensic Sciences. So I, I'm assuming based on what I've read, that the Canadian software version, uh, you can expect it's going to cost more because yeah, okay. it always does. The, the Drager Drug Test 5000 C. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, they won't call it a C because, you know, they got in trouble for that um, because police officers would come to court with the uh, BAC Data Master C and the Intoxilizer 5000 C and they wouldn't say the word, the C, the yeah. letter C. Um, anyway, um, what's a pirate's favorite letter, Kyla? I forget. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> um, they'd forget the C. And when the uh, BAC Data Master C was issued, uh, they then shipped out stickers with C's um, to put on to the instruments. And the other interesting thing was the um, AlcoSensor 4 DWF, which was the approved screening device used in BC, was still used in Quebec until we exposed all the problems with it in 2014 so unreliable but the dwf stood for digital warn and fail i think it was just digi warn fail but yes digi warn fail <laughs> um and the alco sensor fst also as a digi warn fail but they dropped the dwf specification why police officers kept misdescribing it in court it was the dpwfs i i had everything i had every possible version of that, you know, described by police officers over the years. Yeah, one so of the, uh, they, they simplified it. One of the first impaired driving trials I watched before I was a lawyer, the lawyer that was running the trial did the whole, oh, it, it was it an Alcocenter PWF? But I don't think that he knew that a PWF was an approved screening device now that I think of it. Yeah, there's pass one yeah. fail. Yeah. Are you talking? <laughs> that was a really bad question. Was that James? Was that James doing that? No. One? No. Hmm. No, it was another person with a very similar name. Oh. Oh. Yeah. You'd think he would have known. Well, maybe he just hoped. No, he probably didn't. He probably didn't. Lovely guy. Good lawyer. Probably won. He but I, I don't think he would have known. Yeah. No. Um, okay. So what I used to ask the police officers, when you say ASD, do you mean um, alcohol screening device or alcohol scanning device? And some of them would say, yeah. That's great. I don't, I, I haven't done that one in a long time. I mean, I, I don't have the trials with those issues anymore. Yeah. Um, there's also some case law that wouldn't be good these days on that issue. Oh, it, it worked though. No, it did. <laughs> it did. But there've been a couple cases that have shut down the misdescribing the ASD argument. Well, um, it's easy for them to describe now. Well, yeah. Now. I use the FST. The FST. But is that field sobriety test? I know that's what the short form of FST stands for, but not in the form of the AlcoSensor FST, which is an approved screening device in British Columbia. Yes. So if you're not into drunk driving law, you're probably really bored by our discussion. Now let's get back to the Drager Drug Test 5000. So I think this is interesting. And I think one of the things I was thinking about today is sort of the line of um, questioning on the day we have a uh, 
toxicologist or somebody from the RCMP on the witness stand to sort of describe it in one of the earliest cases we're going to have, you know, the, the, one of the lines of questioning, doesn't matter who it's going to be, is a bunch of police forces chose not to use this thing. Is that right? And that could be one of the reasons why they're already backtracking a little bit and saying, oh, yeah, no, no, we're going to get it and we're going to test it out. And so who knows? Yeah, I don't think so. What I found fascinating was the response from Murray Rankin on the police not using this, because I would have thought as the NDP justice critic and just generally the sort of track that he has been taking with like introducing a bill to try and expunge historical cannabis convictions and introducing legislation to try and or sorry introducing a bill to to try and have a study into the proper use of the notwithstanding clause that maybe he would uh, have been supportive of the police doing this but instead he's been really critical of it and that surprised me I I tweeted um, that uh, that he says the police should roll the dice. Um, <laughs> I, I don't I don't, I don't understand. Be the person though whose so life you're gambling you with. You better you better explain his position a little bit uh, for our listeners. This is his usually position. when I step in his, and I start his explaining position his position. Government or his position on no, the issue. His position in government and where he stood <laughs> on that issue. I, usually I step in and I start explaining it and then I feel like it's my podcast. No 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 explain. Okay, so he is a NDP justice critic, and he came out um, in response to the criticism of the drug test 5000 and said, uh, you know, we should just go with it. We should try it out, and let's get it out there and and use it. Um, Sorry, Kyla's dog is barking here. Um, And that we should just use it and try it and experiment with it. And I found that really uh, remarkable that he would say that for a number of reasons. He's in opposition. He shouldn't be in a rush to say that unless he wants to see it fail. But at the same time, uh, you know, you've got this questionable piece of technology that's going to lead to people potentially 15%, if you trust the Norway study, uh, uh, 15% innocent people being uh, Wrongly wrongly arrested, wrongly detained or wrongly prohibited or what have you, whatever the consequences be, depending on the province and the provincial and federal legislation. Um, and he's coming out and saying, despite that, we should just take a, take a run at it and, or maybe, t- you know, try you know, it out. Maybe you're on to something when he says, when you say that, you know, he's looking for it to be challenged because the other thing he did say was, let's let the courts sort it out, which to be fair, the sooner you get it in the hands of police and the sooner it's on the road being used, the sooner it's challenged and the sooner we know whether or not this is in fact constitutionally valid. All I can say is the more I think about it and the more I think about the process and I more think, uh, the more I think about the way, you know, we've used it and tested it, um, the, the more significant my, uh, I, I guess the, the firmer I am in my belief that the court is not going to be enthusiastic about a warrantless search in this case. Yes. Now, other things courts may be enthusiastic about. I've read a bunch of articles lately um, about something called the Druid app, which is like a drug detection. Somebody phoned me about that yeah, a while ago. Yeah, they emailed ago. me and I mean, they're, they're trying to get 
people in our position to hawk their product. Oh, is it the company doing it? Yeah, it's the okay. company. They keep saying, I've developed this app. You should, you know, you should tell people about it and okay, promote it. Because they, yeah. I'm, not, I'm not on this podcast promoting the app. But what <laughs> I did want to respond to was some of the discussion that's been going on from the people who have been promoting the app. Um, because I, I've read a bunch of talk about what it does, which is essentially it engages the user in a series of games on their phone. And the purpose of those games is to test their cognitive impairment and their response time and reaction time to determine whether they're impaired, presumably, in their ability to operate a vehicle. And a lot of the discussion around this has been whether or not it would be admissible in court. And I've read a lot of people saying this wouldn't be admissible in court. Well, I suppose the... the real intention of it is for you to be able to self-assess. But what happens if you self-assess and you do very, very well, uh, and then you get in your car and you drive and the police pull you over and they decide that you're hopped up on whatever? Um, you know, it seems to me that this would be, I mean, it, it tends to demonstrate that you're innocent. So yeah. I mean, it's 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 <laughs> been developed. Obviously, somebody's put some research into it. They probably didn't just make a bunch of games and go, well, that's an app that can tell you if you're, if you're impaired. That would be pretty stupid. So they've put some research into it. And right now, you can challenge. So if you go and you have the drug recognition evaluation, and at the end, there is a determination that you're impaired, and the officer says, say, for example, I believe you're impaired by cannabis. And then they do your urine test and the urine comes back with metabolites of THC. The way that Bill C-46 works is it presumes that you're impaired by cannabis because of the presence of THC confirming the DRE opinion. But it says that presumption is in the absence of evidence to the contrary. So would the app not be, because there's no definition in the law, evidence to the contrary? I think it's certainly admissible. You could certainly try and run it. You could try and run that oh, yeah. argument. I, I mean, mean, anything's you admissible. Might wanna, it, would, <laughs> I, it would depend on the quality of the evidence, whether or not you would be believed. That's, I think, what it comes down to. And Yeah, and you'd and probably have to sure. call someone from the company to explain the... I don't think you necessarily would. I think you I could think get... I think you were smart, you would. I think you could get a doctor, a physician who's yeah, got okay. some real knowledge and... Sure, uh, but some type of expert opinion to back up the effectiveness of the app. Yeah. Um, and then you'd need to prove that you actually did it and that's what your results were and when you did it. Um, probably, you know, the moment you got out of that police station, you'd want to do it again. Um, because, you know, it's an interesting thing. Like, so they're, they're saying in all of these police detachments where we're holding off on the drug test 5,000, they're saying we're going to rely on standardized field sobriety tests. So the drug test 5,000 has its problems. When it's working, if it's accurate, it's objective evidence. And instead of using that, which is highly problematic, as we pointed out, they're going to use the completely subjective um, determination made by a police officer doing standardized field sobriety tests. And then the completely subjective evidence of a police officer doing drug recognition evaluations. This app is more objective. 
Yes, the app is more objective. I don't have the same hypercriticism of using the SFSTs for an arrest, only because, you know, you and I have both taken the training on it. It does have a cognitive component. Yeah, the the physical tests are stupid and, and they make no sense and they don't correlate to cannabis, but it has a cognitive component. It's just that you're, you've got somebody there and watching them and you're making them jump yeah. through hoops. Yeah. I mean, if you watch SFST uh, investigations in the States where they're videoed, most of the time, the cops are just waiting for the person to fall over and go, I'm so fucking drunk. Oh, sorry. I guess I can't pass it. I'm drunk. Yeah. You know, and... and Which surprisingly happens a lot. Happens a lot. And obviously that provides the officer with uh, with um, probable cause for arrest at that point. But the um, I don't think you're going to see that with SFSTs. And as we know, nystagmus, the number one thing with SFSTs, the like most objective part of it, if you think any of its objective alcohol. is only for alcohol and doesn't uh, it doesn't present for people with cannabis uh, impairment so yeah actually in a strange way this app is objective um, it's a bit more of an objective measure and uh, I, I, I I think the issue really comes down to the weight yeah. and the manner in which it's presented in court because well, it's also- it's evidence that tends to uh, show the contrary. Show the contrary. Which so is evidence, evidence to, the to the contrary. We don't have a definition of that in the code, and it would remain open to somebody to actually litigate the issue. And so I think all those people who are proffering an opinion or or positing that it wouldn't be admissible, maybe they're not so creative about how they're going to approach it. Well, I think it's 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 definitely admissible. It's, the yeah. issue is how probative <laughs> yeah. is the value. You, you can and pretty much admit anything. It's just, does it get any weight? And if it gets weight, how much? It's, it's, it's how probative it is and, uh, and the weight that it's given. Yeah. So I, I thought that that was sort of an interesting way to end off our discussion. I'm not, I'm not out to, uh, 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 very important though, we should say. We're not hawking the app. <laughs> We're, oh, it's not just that. Don't try it. Kids, don't try this at home. Yeah, exactly. I mean, don't tr- think that, oh, okay, I just did pass the app and now I can go drive. Yeah, I'm not no, I'm high. I'm just going to practice on the app like every day for the next six weeks so I'm really good at it so that then I can drive anytime and be like, well, the app said I could. One of the things that I learned in our uh, in our last course that we did with the DUI DLA is that uh, THC levels for edibles are much lower, shockingly yeah. lower than for smoking. I know. If Meanwhile, you, you to, can be fucking whacked out of your head if, for a long time yeah. from edibles. Yeah. If And if you want to avoid a per se THC charge, eat your weed. Yeah, that's, yeah. But that only covers you on the per se part. I mean, you're... Yeah, never yeah, mind. That's eat the, your weed, but... Don't drive for people like I've four seen hours. Who, people, at least people who I've seen who eat, uh, you know, use edibles. Most of them that I've seen, including myself, the one time I did it in Washington State lawfully, uh, I I don't know that I would have passed a standardized field sobriety test. Nystagmus, maybe I'd be fine, but the rest, that's true. I I, I might have flunked it. Yeah, I sure as hell wouldn't have driven though. No. No, and that's, you know, the other thing that we learned. And I'm going to have Ron Moore, who gave that presentation on later, to talk about the impairment science because he's a toxicologist and a lawyer. So watch out for the episode with Ron Moore. It's going to be really interesting. Um, but the the other thing he talked about, and now I've forgotten my point. 
was something else. He talked about something else. No, I know. <laughs> I knew where you were going and I you gave such high. a good good introduction for it. No, what she was Kyla was about to say was that um they did some fairly good experiments asking people who were high at certain levels what it would take oh, to get yeah. them to drive. Yeah. In other words, what sort of motivation would they Medical need to emergency. drive? And most of the people who were high just like would not drive. They they wouldn't could not persuade themselves to drive. Yeah, they said it would be like a medical emergency. And then they did testing on those people where they put them behind the wheel and they saw that they were able to compensate, that they made made cognizant decisions to compensate for their impairment by leaving a greater following distance because they knew they were impaired. Whereas if you get someone with alcohol, uh, are you going to leave a greater following distance when you're drunk? No, you're riding the ass of the car in front of you. Yeah. Get out of my way. Jerk ass. <laughs> the, uh, no, the, uh, and, and so that was quite interesting. Uh, it was something that we knew. I just didn't know the extent to which it had been studied, and it, it's apparently been studied fairly well. We know about sort of the three beer thing that we joke about all the time. You have one beer, you're thinking to yourself, I'm not going to drive. You have two beers, you're thinking, well, I had two beers, so I'm not going to drive. And then you have three beers, and you think, oh, I'm just fine. I could drive. I only had one beer. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, so that's the... I drive better after I've had three beers is the thinking. I drive better after 10. Yeah. Unfortunately, that's what happens to people when they're drinking alcohol, which is why we say don't gamble and uh, don't gamble with this app either, because we don't want to, if a client comes in and they've got this evidence, we'll run it uh, for sure. But we don't want to be the, uh, we don't want to do We're not afraid of a creative court challenge. Yeah. But I don't want anybody to try and rely on this thing is what I'm saying. No, and w- that's why I was resistant to the, the messaging from the creators of the app about trying to advertise it because I think that it would maybe encourage people to do that. If they are doing it anyway, then we'll use it, but I don't want to encourage people and give them this false sense of security that hasn't been tested in court. I get phone calls from people all the time. They're developing an app. They're trying to develop a tester. They're trying to develop whatever. Um, I don't know, maybe I could get them to put my name on there as a brand. <laughs> the Paul Doroshenko Marijuana Breathalyzer 5000. Yeah, well, I'm widely known to be connected to breath <laughs> testing equipment. It could be like collectible, like named after famous, <clears throat> like the, there could be like a John Conroy, a Paul Doroshenko, a, a Kirk Tusa. <laughs> I was doing a, uh, a traffic ticket um, here in, in Richmond yesterday. And I was talking to the police officer and I introduced myself and he goes, you're the guy who's got all those breath testers. You're the guy. Yes, I do. Yes. We have a lot of breath testers in the office. Actually, we had a breath tester uh, um, sort of um, duel the other day with Jan Semenov, who's a uh, a tox, well, he's not a toxicologist, he's an expert witness. um, He's a former former police officer. officer. And uh, he was an intoxic CIR2 operator. That was Grant Gottkotrue. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, but he's been really researching for like 20 years, uh, all sorts of problems with it. And he testifies all over the journal. place, publishes a journal that's really widely read in the United States. It's, uh, by the lawyers in the States, but yeah, we had a little, uh, we had a little, uh, comparison of how many different devices we had. And, and I think he's probably, you know, one of the few people in the country who would have uh, I know. A library that would be You were, you were bragging about our, our private collection of breathalyzers being the largest in Canada. And he said, well, wait a minute. I have this, 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 and this. But he still doesn't have the Holy Grail, which I want. He doesn't have the Holy Grail, but he also didn't have um, a number of the older ones that we've got. I don't think he had a 7410. What's the Holy Grail to you? 
The Holy Grail is a Datamaster DMT. No, the Holy Grail is a Drunkometer. Oh, a Drunkometer. Yeah, that is the Holy Grail. That is the Holy Grail. I'm I sorry, I should have known that. I would, like, buy it. I would give the Vancouver Police Museum $10,000 for one. But I don't think theirs is real. I think oh. there's maybe a simulation of one. No, where where can I get one? <laughs> Drunkometer. If anybody's got a Drunkometer sitting in their basement, call Kyla Lee. Yeah, I've just, uh, I've just made a ludicrous offer for She'll one. pay you five times the original cost of a Drunkometer. <laughs> No one's got one. No one's going to take me up on no, that. No, I know. I don't think there's <laughs> Otherwise, one Otherwise, I'm going to be working overtime. <laughs> what, five times the original price of one? They originally no, sold for $15. No, I just offered $10,000. I don't know if you missed that. Oh, oh, mm. no. I, I don't think you're paying $10,000 no. for that. <laughs> no, I don't have 10 not a, grand that, for that was not a reward. She's revoking that reward immediately. <laughs> Offer revoked. <laughs> no. $1,000 maybe. Yeah, 1000 bucks for sure. Yeah, I'd pay $1,000 for a drunk meter yeah. just to have it. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, so... We'll end the podcast on that note. If yeah. you have a drunkometer, call us. We have cash. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so this is uh, Kyla Lee's Driving Law podcast featuring Scott Wonder this week, uh, who you can uh, contact by contacting Kyla or myself, uh, and me, the other guest, Paul Doroshenko, and Kyla Lee. And if you would like to get a hold of us, you can get a hold of us a number of ways. You can call us, 604-685-8889. You can find us at VancouverCriminalLaw.com. You can find Kyla on Twitter at IRP Lawyer. You can find me on Twitter at Paul Doroshenko. And how else can people contact us, Kyla? Uh, Skywriting. Yep. You can also write it in the sky. Uh, and uh, if you have a Drunkometer, make sure you contact Kyla because uh, you found a buyer. <laughs>